Hey everyone, this is John Ambo, and I've got a quick note about what we have upcoming in the MWI podcast before we get into this episode. A couple of us from MWI had the opportunity recently to spend a couple weeks in Sweden and Finland as part of a team organized and sponsored by the Homeland Defense Institute, a research organization connected to both the U.S. Air Force Academy and NORAD Northcom. We're really privileged to work closely with HDI on a number of fronts, and this research trip was a phenomenal opportunity for us. Obviously, Sweden and Finland both applied for NATO membership this year, which has major geostrategic implications. There's also a lot to learn from each country's current and historical approaches to not just whole-of-government, but whole-of-society defense. We're going to be publishing a series of articles that explore some of the fascinating things we learned during our time in the two countries. We will also have a few podcast episodes that come out of the trip that we'll be running as sort of a mini-series. So if you know anybody interested in European security, NATO, Russia, and how it's perceived in the region, the concept of total defense, information warfare, and a host of related subjects, please spread the word. Those episodes should be released in the coming few weeks. In the meantime, as we're working on them, I wanted to share one of my favorite episodes since we began recording the MWI podcast with certainly one of the most interesting guests I've had the opportunity to speak to. I hope you enjoy it. When the military uh, started putting things in orbit decades ago, space was a place that was inaccessible to most people and so when the military had a satellite up there big and bright or whatever looked to the left looked to the right looked up and down it didn't find a whole lot of neighbors now when the military looks up down left and right in space there are a lot of things it sees so to me weaponization isn't about uh, what technology gets on orbit, it's how it's used. And so then the, the really difficult challenge is how do you infer intent when you're observing and monitoring? Welcome back to the Modern War Institute podcast. I'm John Ambo, editorial director at MWI. And in this episode, I have a conversation with a fascinating guest, Dr. Mora Baja. He is a space scientist, part of the Department of Aerospace Engineering and Engineering Mechanics at the University of Texas, where he tracks objects in space. Not only is he really smart on the science of orbital mechanics, he's also very passionate about the practical applications of the science, which makes him a really great guest for the podcast. Before we get to the conversation, just a couple notes. First, I originally recorded this episode on the sidelines of a conference hosted by the Army's Mad Scientist program. If you're not familiar with them, definitely take a look at their work, including their blog, The Mad Scientist Laboratory, and their own podcast, which features some really incredible discussions. And finally, what you hear in this episode are the views of the participants and don't represent those of West Point, the Army, or any other agency of the U.S. government. All right, here's my conversation with Dr. Morabaja. Dr. Morabaja, thank you so much for sitting down and having a conversation that I'm really excited about. I wonder if you can start by by sharing a little bit about your background and what you do now. Yeah, so uh, I am currently an associate professor here at the University of Texas at Austin in the Aerospace Engineering and Engineering Mechanics Department. My background is astrodynamics, which is the science that studies motion of objects in space. I uh, got my, uh, all my degrees in aerospace engineering, did grad school at the University of Colorado at Boulder, Worked for NASA's Jet Propulsion Lab for about seven years, doing 
Mars missions. I was a spacecraft navigator over there. Uh, then did about a decade with the Air Force Research Laboratory, working space situational awareness and space surveillance. And then uh, in a moment of weakness, I left the government and became an academic. <laughs> um, some some would not call that a moment of weakness. They call it a moment of sanity, I think. Um, so so let's talk about space. I mean, so so the stuff that you do, you're tracking, you know, the many thousands of th- how many things are there floating around in space? Yeah. So look. Um, in terms of things that could actually damage a satellite, we're talking about roughly half a million objects, uh, ranging in size from a speck of paint to a school bus, but we can't track things as small as a speck of paint. So really, w- the only things that we can track are things down to, say, the size of a softball or a smartphone. And then we're talking, uh, out of the half million objects, we're talking about 26,000, roughly, of which two thi- 2,000 things work and everything else is garbage. It's just junk floating around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just dead, defunct satellites, things that have exploded or collided with other things, nuts, bolts, all those. So why is it important that we do this? I mean, I think there's some obvious answers, but can you explain? Yeah, so the world is becoming more and more dependent on space services and capabilities, everything from banking, position navigation and timing, communications, uh, and nothing really protects these services from, from not working anymore. And you know, all of these satellites are put into very specific orbital neighborhoods or space highways. And so there's more and more stuff on the highways. Uh, there's mostly dead adrift stuff on the highways and we have no space traffic rules. So, so that's the current situation. And how, how bad can it get? I mean, 26,000 things that you're tracking now, how many, is there sort of a, a critical mass of stuff there where it's just, it's, it's too dangerous and something needs to be done. And can anything be done? Yeah, so I would say this, right? Um, even though the number of objects sounds like it's a lot, space is quite vast. Uh, and I think it's less about the number of objects per se and more about our uncertainty regarding those objects. So it's almost like if you look at the traffic pattern of air traffic coming into a place like Los Angeles International, 50 years ago, there's no way that LAX could sustain that traffic because of the ambiguity. You know, there's a certain region of uncertainty around the planes, and so you had to space these things out by a lot. Now with GPS and you know where a plane is to within a few feet, you can pack the skies. So similar to space, there's just so much ambiguity with what's up there and where it's going. That's where the lack of safety uh, comes into play. So if we actually knew where everything was down to a few feet, we'd probably say, hey, we don't have enough stuff up there. So where does it most of it come from? Is it satellites that were deliberately launched up there? Is it, you know, what, what is all this? If it's 2,000 of the 26,000, I think you said, are functioning things that are doing what they were sent up there to do, what's the other 24,000? So the other 24,000 are things that have run out of fuel and they're just now dead and adrift. Um, it's rocket bodies, the things that actually took the satellites there. Those rocket bodies, especially from the time of you know, Sputnik all the way to now, they've been staying up there. Um, there are a few people that are trying to make these things come back, but by and large, these things stay up there. And then sometimes debris is generated uh, just in deploying some of these satellites. Like there used to be pyrotechnics that used to kind of uh, exploding bolts uh, to release satellites. That's how we used to do things. And so that generated debris. Now we don't do that anymore. So there, there's been an evolution in how we do space operations. But, but again, most of the stuff up there just never comes back. 
What, what does it look like, practically speaking, to, to be able to track these? I mean, how do, you, how do you discover a new thing? Yeah, great question. So this is a really challenging problem. Most of the stuff up there doesn't report its location or its identity. Mm-hmm. So we have an identity crisis uh, when, when it comes to the stuff in space. All we have available really are observations from sensors like radars and telescopes. And these aren't resolved images, it's just dots. So somehow we need to do the science that takes a bucket of dots collected from different locations at different times and try to identify unique objects from that bucket. And whenever we detect something that's not in our database of objects, it's possible that it's something new or it's something that we actually lost and we found again but don't know it. When you say detect, and like, how do you identify, hey, this is not something, is, it, is there a computer that's sort of going through all the characteristics and say this is new, or is this a, is this a labor-intensive human sort of endeavor? So, so the current, uh, operationally speaking, the front end is a computer, but then there's a set of things that the computer couldn't figure out, and operationally, that's a human. Uh, what, I know the name, but I'm not, I'm not going to say the person's name uh, in Colorado Springs, uh, that, that at least I knew did this, uh, this uh, work. Mm-hmm. For us here at the University of Texas, we don't have a human analyst to do it, so we do it all with algorithms, with math and physics, and combine these things to try to sort out the identity, uh, resolve this identity crisis, if you will. So that was going to be my next question. As you mentioned, Colorado Springs, we, we, you know, that's, I think, the only entity that I was aware did this, tracks this. Who else has the... Um, I guess, desire to and capability to track all these things. Is, are we talking about a few institutions or globally are there places in virtually every country that can do this? Yeah, so in many countries, for sure, the Russians have a group that does this. Uh, the Chinese have their own group that does this. India is starting to develop that capability. The European Union and European Space Agency as a whole has a space situational awareness program managed out of their center in Darmstadt, Germany. They're developing these capabilities across Europe. You have commercial entities like uh, uh, ExoAnalytics, like L3ADS, like Leo Labs for, for, for low Earth orbit with radar. So commercial folks are saying, hey, uh, we believe there's a marketplace to track these things and somebody might be interested in, in, in purchasing these services and capabilities. So it, it's something that's growing uh, at an alarming rate across the globe. What, um, I guess, in your words, how, why, why is this important to the military? So when the military uh, started putting things in orbit decades ago, space was a place that was inaccessible to most people. And so when the military had a satellite up there, big and bright or whatever, looked to the left, looked to the right, looked up and down, it didn't find a whole lot of neighbors. Hmm. Now when the military looks up, down, left and right in space, there are a lot of things it sees. Right now, I think the United Nation recognizes upwards of 90 spacefaring countries. So then the question is, what belongs to whom? What's its intent? What can it do? Can it cause me harm? Can it disrupt some of the things that people are really depending upon uh, to maintain our, our freedom and way of life? And that's where the problem is. So space traffic and space debris, even though it doesn't sound like should be a DOD interest, very much is, because the question that I like saying to people is, debris or not debris? That is the question. <laughs> you said 90. The UN recognizes 90 spacefaring countries. Yep. 
I think that would be shocking to most most people that don't work on this on a daily basis because we you know most people can name kind of the big few countries that are we know launch things up into space. So what about those other you know eighty or eighty five countries? What makes them spacefaring countries? Right. So so spacefaring doesn't necessarily mean launch capability, and it also doesn't necessarily mean space agency. It just means countries that in one way or another are using some sort of space-based capability and partnering with somebody else on it. So for instance, uh, a country, Nigeria. Nigeria actually has a space agency and uh, they have like a satellite fleet of like two satellites. Really? Um, they're spacefaring. Kenya now is in the mix. Uh, Ghana is now kind of in the mix. So you have more and more of these African countries and other developing nations that first are partnering with others that can launch these things and operate it, buying time on some of these satellites, but forming their own national space policies and looking at actually developing some of this technology on their own. Wow. So when, when a country that does have a launch capability, um, let's say China, launches something up into space, what does, what does that look like? at work for you that day and I mean do you do you have advanced knowledge of this is there you know do you have sort of certain steps that you take that say to figure make sure you're tracking you know the vehicle and any satellites it puts out and any potential debris yeah so I would say that the research that we're doing here at UT is going in that direction um you know by and large space surveillance has mostly been uh a sensor-based activity you know radars and telescopes the thing that we're also exploring here at UT is looking at human-based inputs, meaning can we monitor the internet for tweets, uh, things that come out on spacenews.com, these sorts of things where now you have a corpus of words, of sem semantic elements that you could then apply something like natural language processing to, to, to find, figure stuff out with. So I say that a radar and a telescope is a sensor of a physical thing, Natural language processing is a sensor of a semantic thing. And radars and telescopes, we try to find the needle in the haystack. With the semantic stuff, we're trying to find the needle in the needle stack. It's a much more difficult, but there's a richness of information, a wealth of information waiting to be mined there. And we're just starting to explore those sorts of things. So what's an example? How, so kind of digging down into that. You mentioned Twitter. Like, what what might be an example of something that could be found on Twitter that helps you track yeah. things in space? So, so I'm part of a WhatsApp group called New Space India, for instance. There's some people on New Space India that have sensors, amateur telescopes uh, in the region, where whenever they see something launched that seems like it comes from China, they just say, "Hey, I just saw this bright thing in the sky at this time, going in this direction." These are things that we could take advantage of and then try to monitor, oh, guess what? This radar detected something that's not in our database and it kind of matches, based on the time and the location, it kind of, it kind of matches this other thing that we found on WhatsApp or Twitter that says that there was a launch from this part of the world at this time. That's the sort of detective work that we're trying to develop algorithms uh, to be able to automate and, 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 and populate our knowledge base with, with that sort of information. How much, uh, you know, we, we talked a few minutes ago about the various institutions or, or places that have this capability and, and desire for this, to do this kind of stuff. Um, how much sort of coordination, collaboration is there 
um, presumably their geopolitics enters into it and things like that. But, mm. um, you know, do you work closely with uh, entities in, in other countries or other academic institutions or things like that? Yeah, so uh, I'm very collaborative. I work with, right now I'm, I'm actually collaborating with folks in India. Uh, and one of, I have some telescopes that I'm developing. One of them is going to get deployed to India. I'm working with the Australians. I have colleagues in Switzerland. I'm actually sharing a resource with the Russians uh, for a telescope that's currently in New Mexico. Uh, so yeah, so I, I work across uh, countries, uh, different, you know, government, academia, uh, private industry as well. You know, Leo Labs, for instance, we have a great relationship where they provide us like radar data on things. So yeah, so I'm a, all hands on deck. Uh, I don't subscribe to uh, Lord of the Rings, one, one ring to rule them all kind of thing. So, so I work quite well with everybody, but I gotta tell you this. <coughs> Commercial companies are more and more interested in these capabilities because there's been no domain where there's been human activity that has been absent of malice and things like piracy. Sure. And so if you start packing the skies with more and more satellites, people are going to compete with each other and they're going to try to affect each other's bottom line. So we're going to be seeing disputes between two companies in space soon. And what's the burden of proof to resolve that? Disputes in, uh, what, what, what might that look like? Well, basically it's like if Acme Incorporated has a satellite constellation and then Jimmy Incorporated has another one and Acme says, hey, my signal got degraded around this time and I think Jimmy did this to me uh, and I lost money as a result. What's the burden of proof? Hmm. So if you... You've been doing this for a while. If you look forward now, the next 10, 15 years, what worries you the most? You know, when you, when you, you know, from your perspective and in, in, in your career field. I think what worries me the most is not being able to get to single uh, causal relationships uh, with consequences or things that we observe. And by that I mean this: something anomalous happens on orbit, and given the evidence you know, 12 different things can explain the evidence and the 12 different things are very different from each other. That's worrisome because to me, people can hide behind that. And so what I want to do is the model of our research is nihil arcanum est, which means nothing hides. And I want to make space transparent and predictable. That's the way to make it safe and sustainable. Is that possible? That's what I'm shooting for. Mm. Well, I want to kind of, we'll wrap up. Um, I want to bring it back to the, you know, I asked the question of why should the military care? Why does the Defense Department care? Um, there are phrases that are kind of largely devoid of meaning when you talk about the weaponization of space. Mm. Um, when you hear a phrase like that, what does it mean to you? What is, what, what military applications or functions do you see migrating to space or, or emerging in space? Again, we're talking over, say, the next 10 to 15 years. So I see a lot of dual-use technology, things like on-orbit servicing. I mean, we have harpoons now developed by European Space Agency, nets, grappling hooks. And these things could be used for good and, 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 and make things better, or it could be used to the detriment of, of other people's assets. So to me, weaponization isn't about uh, what technology gets on orbit, it's how it's used. And so then the, the really difficult challenge is how do you infer intent when you're observing and monitoring? And this is one of the reasons why I want to make things transparent, is I want that body of evidence to be globally accessible so that when somebody misuses the dual technology, that is very evident that there was intent behind the misuse. 
So we, I think, you know, anybody listening to this is probably thinking of all the technology involved in this, the telescopes and, um, and just the technology involved in putting things in space, much less tracking them in space. Um, but you're talking about this sort of very human element of motives and things like that. It's, 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 I, you know, I, I, I commend you for that, for that desire to make it more transparent. Presumably there are also people out there who are trying to do the opposite and trying to sort of blind you to being able to track what they or other actors are doing. Yes. So, so the answer to your question is yes, there are people that, that clearly have that intention. I can tell you that there are people that I know of, uh, that are unhappy with the technology that we've already developed, the astrograph, uh, what we already display there. There are people that definitely would not like to see that progress. The astrograph being this system that that displays all, all these locations. Exactly, yeah. and monitors this stuff and crowdsources information. But uh, to me, this is the beginning of the end of hiding in space. So so, so once the critical mass is reached, right now computers have, have been automating this stuff. So I don't, I don't touch astrograph. It does its thing on its own at this point. As I add more and more information, it's going to be more and more difficult to hide. Wow. Well, any listeners that that you know are interested in this, I would I would urge them to go and check it out because it's it's some fascinating work that you guys are doing, and I and I think uh, it's probably only going to get more fascinating in the uh, in the years to come. Dr. Jaw, thanks so much for making some time to sit down and and uh, and have a conversation with us. Anytime, thank you so much. Hey, thank you so much for listening to the MWI podcast. One last thing, if you aren't yet following MWI on social media, find us on Twitter, Facebook, or LinkedIn. It is a great way to stay up to date on all of the new articles, podcast episodes, and research we're publishing every day. Thanks again. Thanks again.